Well, good morning again. If you've uh, got a Bible and would like to follow along as we read, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 24. Uh, these words are, not, I don't believe, going to be on the screen, so uh, you'll have to listen or follow along as I read, or you can read with me in your Bible. Um, this is one of my favorite post-resurrection stories. It's the, the account of the folks that are on their way to Emmaus. And this is what Luke writes. He says, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Pretty big walk. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Very interesting fact. I love someday to find out more about that, why they didn't recognize him. Um, it says that Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still at this point, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb. Who are these? Who are the companions? It was the running race. It was John and Peter, remember? <laughs> then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he, Jesus, said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Best Bible study ever. Hands down right there. I mean, oh man, to have been there. Uh, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. What's with that? That's so weird. But, you know, that'll be interesting too. We've got questions about that. You know, what was that, Jesus? And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Such an interesting passage. We'll be going back to that several times this morning. Pray with me. Lord God, teach us. We want to hear from you, your word, your spirit. Uh, Father, um, some of us need encouragement this morning. Some of us need challenging. Whatever it is we need, God, anything in between, may your spirit and your word speak to us and say to us what we need to hear. For we ask it in the powerful, precious name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen? 
Well, this morning we're finishing our series. Uh, we have for some weeks now been talking about things like faith and the problem that all human beings have, and that is the problem of uncertainty. So many areas of our lives we don't have certainty around. We've talked about science and how sometimes it's perceived that science is antagonistic towards the faith or vice versa. We've been arguing that's not the case, not when rightly understood. We've talked about materialism as a world life view as opposed to the faith of Christianity, Christianity's world and life view. Talked about the problem of morality. If you don't have a God, let me tell you, you don't have morality except for your own. You can believe or do whatever you think is right, but you know, it doesn't mean somebody else has got to believe with you that that's right. We've talked about atheism and agnosticism. Last week, we began to talk about the Bible. Uh, is it reliable? Can the Bible be trusted? Uh, does it report history accurately? That's a profoundly important question. It sounds like a classroom question, but it's profoundly important because if the Bible is a trustworthy record of events within friends, there really is a man named Jesus who said some remarkable things and did some remarkable things in support of what he said. And if the Bible is not trustworthy, if it's not a, an accurate reporter of the facts, if it's a book of myth or a book of legend, well, then it is one of the saddest developments in all of human history. That so many people have wasted their lives reading it, many memorizing it, following the man that it claims to be about. How sad is that if it's not true? So the question is, why should I believe the Bible? Is the Bible trustworthy? Uh, aren't there things in the Bible that are just wrong? They're, they're inaccurate. They're uh, culturally barbaric. Things and attitudes that, you know, our culture, we have moved past a long time ago. Attitudes towards women. Attitudes towards things like slavery or gender issues or sexual orientation. I mean, isn't the Bible just culturally outdated? How do we respond to those kinds of questions? Last week, uh, we said that we can trust the Bible historically. That was the argument last week. And we looked at the claims of many who say that the New Testament was written by churchmen around 150 to 250 AD, many years after Jesus died. Churchmen who simply made up the stories, the miracles, the incredible things that Jesus did, manufactured the miracles, manipulated the truth, made up the idea even that Jesus was God, claiming that, you know, Jesus never actually claimed that. Some claim today that that's the truth. And they did this to create a movement that would give them religious and political power. That's, that's the argument. And I said in a nutshell that views of that nature are, frankly, they're just wrong. I mean, they're just, history doesn't bear that out. That's, that's just wrong. I argued that the Bible can be trusted historically. It's not legend. It's not myth. And I gave three reasons. So what's the first one? <laughs> Looks like maybe I need to repeat it. Yeah. The first reason was because the New Testament gospels and the letters were written too close to the time of Jesus. They weren't actually written from 150 to 250 AD. They were written much, much earlier, closer to the events when there were eyewitnesses around and could either verify or not verify the things that were written. The second reason I gave is that the New Testament gospels and letters are too counterproductive in their content. They don't really tell a great story about the apostles or about the church leaders. They actually show them with all of their warts and ugliness and failures and doubts and so, right? Uh, who would write that? You go ahead and get that. We'll wait. <laughs> I mean, who would doubt? Uh, if you were writing that story 150, 250 years later, I mean, you wouldn't put in all these stories about the, the foibles of the founders of the faith. You wouldn't do that. Wow, that was great alliteration. Um, <laughs> 
And then thirdly, I said these, uh, the details, the details of the gospels with regards to the events of the life of Jesus and the details and the people and the places, all of these things are just not the stuff of legends. And you can listen to that message online if you like this morning. I want to continue the argument that the Bible is trustworthy. It's not only trustworthy historically, that was last week, it's also trustworthy culturally. I want to dive into that with you this morning. Essentially, the problem is this. Today, many people are troubled more by certain cultural aspects of the Bible than they are with regards to this thing of the historicity of the Bible. Is it historically accurate? They're more troubled by what it says or what it puts forth culturally. In other words, as people read the Bible, they bump into things that, man, they consider to be primitive, uh, barbaric, regressive, things like slavery, things like polygamy, things like statements about homosexuality. And they say, man, what is with this? We stopped thinking this way a long time ago. That's so culturally regressive. It's culturally backward. And they say some parts of the Bible are okay. I mean, forgiveness is a good thing. Mercy is a good thing, right? Love your neighbor as yourself, turn the other cheek. But other parts of the Bible are just archaic. It's just wrong. Things like sexuality. You know, the Bible claims that sex is a great thing. God made it but it's to happen within the context of covenantal promises. Uh, in other words, the context of a marriage. Um, things like uh, marrying someone of like faith, that, that too is in there. You know, not only is sex sacred, but, but even the covenantal relationship is strongest and best when two people of like faith uh, join in making promises to one another. Or things like this, Jesus is the only way to know God. Wow, that is so intolerant. No, Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me. I guess Bernie Sanders had never heard that. <laughs> Very interesting that we live in a culture where, you know, we could question a person's uh, acceptability in a political position or in an appointed political position uh, on the basis of their faith. Be they Muslim, be they Christian, be they Jew, whatever. Uh, if you're wondering what the heck I'm talking about, you can just go on and just Google Bernie Sanders. You'll see it. You know, when you open the Bible and you, you read statements about slavery, boy, it makes you kind of wonder, does the Bible advocate slavery? Uh, how do we respond to these kinds of concerns? You know, in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle Paul says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Whoa, whoa. Obey them not only to win their favor, when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Man, it sounds like he approves of this institution. What's going on here? What do you do when you read the Bible and you run into stuff that seems culturally archaic or even maybe to you barbaric? Well, first I would suggest that anytime you run into a passage of the Bible that offends you, puzzles you, mystifies you, maybe even makes you angry, there are three things you ought to do. You wanna know what they are? Okay, here's number one. First, consider the possibility that the passage you're reading doesn't teach what you think it teaches. That's always a possibility. You may be misunderstanding what the Bible teaches. In the passage that we read just a moment ago in Luke 24, you notice that the disciples were pretty upset. They're on their way to Emmaus. They said they even stopped at one point and were downcast. Their faces were downcast. Why are they so upset? Well, it's because they thought the Bible taught something that it didn't actually teach. That was the problem. Jesus had to explain to them that their expectations were wrong regarding the Messiah. 
They had not properly understood what the Old Testament scriptures taught about Messiah. Essentially, they expected the Messiah to overthrow Rome, these Roman oppressors. Jesus had to explain the scriptures to them and help them see that the Messiah had come for a very different kind of revolution, actually, a spiritual revolution, not a political one. The point is, when you come to a text you're reading and something in it bothers you, you need to be patient with those texts. Don't jump to conclusions. The fact is, maybe you need more information to rightly understand what that text is saying. Here's another example. When we read the book of Genesis, we read about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esau and so, some of the patriarchs. Very quickly, you come across the fact that these men are polygamous. Anybody else notice that? They're polygamous. They have multiple wives. These men, these individuals, these heads of family are in the power seat. I mean, they, they make all the decisions. They call all the shots. They're in complete control. And actually, too, they buy the women they want at a bridal price. Uh, however old, however young, they, you know, I'll like to have you be one of my wives and I'll just pay the price and now you're my wife. So what's with that? Does God condone polygamy? Uh, he doesn't seem to condemn it outright. Uh, and yet today in our culture, we certainly condemn polygamy. Am I right? Anybody for polygamy? Good, good. We'll send the visitors running here in a minute, you know. But we're left to wonder, what, what is going on here? Should I, should I not trust the Bible I mean, is it just an outdated, culturally regressive book that condones all kinds of awful stuff? I mean, what should I do with this book called the Bible? Well, again, let me suggest that you do a little more digging. That's really the answer in, to this question. Do a little more digging. Way back when I entered seminary, we were assigned some reading out of a book by a, uh, written by a guy named Dr. Robert Alter. It's called The Art of Biblical Narrative. It was a book to get us students, those of us who wanted to study the Bible for a living, so to speak, to think more deeply about what, in fact, the Bible is teaching, to get below the surface. In this book, he explains that there's two institutions that were universal. They were everywhere in, in Semitic cultures. Uh, one was polygamy, multiple wives, and the other was primogeniture, the law of inheritance, the custom that the oldest son inherited everything. All the money, all the power, all the property went to the oldest son. And he became, in, in essence, the new patriarch. When the, when the oldest patriarch died, the, the, new, the oldest son would become the next patriarch. And he would rule everyone and everything in that family. But what Dr. Alter pointed out is that when you actually read the text of Genesis, the stories themselves, you actually come to the conclusion, ah, there's a subtext going on here. There's a message beneath the message you get the message through the story that in every generation, polygamy wrecks havoc with the family. You get the message in the subtext that primogeniture is actually rejected by God, not supported, not put in place by God. There's a subtext over and over and over. Polygamy is devastating socially. It's devastating culturally. It's devastating emotionally. It's devastating relationally. It's devastating psychologically. Turns out the message of Genesis is not one of condoning polygamy. It's actually exposing it for what it really is, a disaster, an absolute disaster. And as it relates to primogeniture, this other institution that's kind of everywhere, God again and again and again in actual practice favors the younger son over the older son. What's with that? 
What are we being told? What are we being taught? It's Abel over Cain. It's Isaac over Ishmael. It's Jacob over Esau. Dr. Alter says that if you read Genesis carefully, you realize it's subverting, not supporting these cultural institutions. Have you got that? Okay. It's a huge point. But if you don't read carefully and thoughtfully, you miss the whole point. You might think the Bible's supporting these institutions, or you might think that the Bible's culturally regressive or would call us to those kinds of practices, or you would, might think that the Bible is barbaric. Ironically, you would rege be rejecting the teaching of the Bible, not understanding that it teaches the exact opposite of what you think it teaches. And consequently, you miss the opportunity to know the God of the Bible personally, intimately, you miss the opportunity to know the heart of God because you misread the text or misunderstand it. That would be a tragedy. Yes? Yes. You know, we don't have the time to go into all this now, but at least let me suggest a similar principles at play when you come to other issues that are kind of hot topics in our day. Uh, some time ago would have been the, the issue of slavery, but today it's male and female roles and things of that nature. There are similar kinds of issues at play for us when we come to those passages and how to interpret them. But the point is this, when you come to something in the Bible that troubles you, please consider the fact that maybe, just maybe, the text is not teaching what you think it's teaching. That's the first thing to consider, okay? Here's the second. Please consider the possibility that you don't understand what the Bible is teaching because of your own cultural blinders. You know, we see through a lens our culture is in many ways our lens and we, we have a hard time ever taking off that lens. And so uh, we, we tend to see through our own cultural blinders. And this actually can work in two ways. This is what's going on in Luke 24, the passage we read a moment ago. The disciples didn't understand the work of the Messiah, primarily because of their cultural expectations, right? They thought the Messiah was just for the Jews. They thought that the Messiah was their own personal national deliverer. They misunderstood Jesus' mission because their culture blinded them to seeing the Messiah's bigger purpose. In Luke 24, 20 and 21, um, they actually say this about Jesus. They say, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That was our cultural expectation. And what that meant to them was he's going to you know, throw off the Roman oppression and set up a kingdom that's going to reign worldwide. And the Jews will be at the top of that that podium, when the fact was really that Jesus had come to redeem people from every tribe and every nation. In other words, sometimes the language of the Bible is he's come to redeem the whole world. And uh, their own culture had created their expectations, which you see in this case were just dead wrong. Their, expectation, their expectations were too little. Their expectations had caused them to misinterpret Old Testament teaching about the Messiah. That's one way that our culture can get uh, in the way of our understanding scripture. Are you still with me? Yes. Here's another way that happens. When we read back into previous cultures, aspects of our own, and thereby we misunderstand what's really going on. Uh, the classic example of this is, the, and I've used this before, is, is the slavery. This is the classic example of reading back into one culture something from our own. The Apostle Paul said again in Ephesians 6, 5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. And people will read that and they'll go, Aha! The Bible condones slavery. What is with that? Slavery is wrong. So what else does the Bible teach that's wrong? The problem is, 
That is a classic example of judging one culture through the lens of another when you don't understand or know enough about the culture you're judging. Let me explain. See, the question is, does the Bible support or condone slavery? What's the short answer? No, it does not. When you look at the New Testament, especially the book of Philemon, a little book in the New Testament, which is a book where Paul specifically addresses the issue of slavery, you discover several things. You discover, number one, that slavery in the Roman culture was not the same as slavery when we think about it in America between you know, the 1600s and the late 1800s here in, in North America. Very different thing, the slavery that was happening in Rome in the first century A.D., Slavery in Rome was much closer to what we think of as indentured servanthood. Uh, there's an author, Murray Harris, uh, wrote a book called Slave for Christ. And in it, he writes this. It says, in the first century Roman Empire, when the New Testament was written, there was not a great difference between slaves and the average free person. Slaves were not distinguishable from other races or by speech or clothing. They were often better educated than their masters. They looked and lived like most everyone else and were not segregated from the rest of society in any way. From a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and therefore were not usually poor. Also, slaves could accrue enough personal capital to buy themselves out of slavery. Most important of all, very few slaves were slaves for life. Most could reasonably hope to be manumitted within 10 to 15 years or by their late 30s at the latest. Quite a different institution. In contrast to that, slavery that we know about, colonial slavery, new world slavery, was of course, it was race-based. It was chattel slavery. The slave was considered the property of the owner. It was the master's tool to do with as he saw fit. So a master could, could rape or maim or work to death or kill or sell uh, at the will or whim of, uh, of the master, of, of that person. In Roman slavery, only the slave's productivity, that is their, their time and their skills, the services that they rendered were owned by the master and only temporarily. Whereas colonial slavery was an institution you were in almost always for life. Also, the African slave trade was begun and resourced how? Well, by kidnapping people, capturing people and putting them in bondage uh, shipping them to other parts of the world. The Bible unconditionally condemns kidnapping and trafficking in slaves. Did you know that? In 1 Timothy, uh, the apostle Paul writes to a young pastor, uh, a co-worker named Timothy, and this is what he writes. He says, we also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers. That's a pretty bad category for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Slave trading, contrary to sound doctrine. Uh, in Deuteronomy 24, we read this. If a man is caught kidnapping one of his brother Israelites and treats him as a slave or sells him, the kidnapper must die, punishable by death. So again, understand when Paul wrote his letters, slavery was a pervasive institution in that society. In fact, we know that 30 to 40% of the population of Italy in the first century AD was made up of slaves, 30 to 40%. Paul consistently encouraged slaves to get free as soon as they could rightly do so. He encouraged it. 
Read the book of Philemon. But in the 18th and 19th century, Christians faced a whole new breed of slavery. It was a different institution. And a majority of Christians at that time, in fact, I'm reading a history called Cry of Freedom by a guy named McPherson right now, and it's very interesting to me. So much in this, that time period, antebellum, and then Civil War period that I really knew nothing about. It's just fascinating. Um, but it, it, what's one thing that is fascinating to me are the number of Christians that rose up as abolitionists to oppose this heinous institution that a large part of the culture of the United States was built upon. And the point is this, when you hear somebody say the Bible condones slavery, that's just not true. It's also way too simplistic. It doesn't do justice to the numbers of Christians, some of whom even laid down their lives for the sake of seeing the institution of slavery abolished. It's just not accurate. It also doesn't take into account the cultural differences uh, between slavery then and slavery as it existed from 1600 to 1800. But then somebody's going to say, well, yeah, but you know what? Christians in the South argued that the Bible supported the idea of slavery. And you know what? That's absolutely true. They did. The vast majority of Christians living in that Southern culture at that time did argue that the Bible uh, supported this institution of slavery, And that's another perfect example of reading scripture through cultural blinders, right? Through a set of lenses that help you to see the Bible teaches what you want it to teach. It's a grave danger, always is a grave danger. Many Southern Christians twisted and perverted what the Bible taught to serve their own cultural purposes. And that's, that's a serious problem for all of us, for, for us too, as we read scripture, if we want to be honest about it. How much of my understanding of scripture is culturally qualified? You always got to be praying about that and asking those kinds of questions. You know, we, uh, we have this danger today when Christians uh, talk about hating homosexuals. And I'm, I'm using that word quite, hating homosexuals. There have been times in the history of the church here in North America where we probably would never have said, yes, we hate homosexuals, but we probably uh, felt that way. We probably showed that. We had a subtext about how we go about treating those with a, a sexual orientation different than ours, where, where the real message, the subtext was, we hate you. You aren't welcome here. Do not, you know, get out of our sight. Well, you, you disgust us. And I got to tell you, that, uh, letting that kind of attitude come out of us or, or be transmitted, is, it's a perversion of what the Bible teaches. It's not what the Bible teaches. Um, that's kind of letting your cultural blinders, in this case, the subtext of a Christian culture, get the best of us. Not really having it be defined by scripture. The Bible, did, boy, I've got you listening now, don't I? Where is he going with this? Let's close in prayer. <laughs> you know, I, I really debated whether it even weighed into this, but I, I feel like it, it's a good illustration of how we can misinterpret the Bible because um, we, we, can, we can view groups of people wrongly just as they did in the South. We can, we can do that even today, and, and I believe we have done it. I believe the, the whole debate raging around the homosexual orientation and so on and, and sexual preferences is one where the church can pretty easily get it wrong. Uh, you know, the Bible does not teach us to despise or be necessarily disgusted by any group of people. We live in a fallen world where sin is prevalent. It's prevalent in you. It's prevalent in me. 
Figuring out how to love sinful people is what we are called to do and who we are called to be as we follow Jesus. Um, The Bible clearly teaches that we are to love and to serve everyone. It's figuring out how to do that that's the hard part. It really is. Um, You know, the Bible says that the sexually immoral and idolaters and adulterers and prostitutes and homosexuals and thieves and greedy people and drunkards and slanderers and swindlers, all of these people are right here, right now. I mean, they are us. Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he uses that very list that I just read to you. It's in 1 Corinthians 6 and he warns them. He says, if you want to practice those things, That's the word. If you want to practice those things, that is if you think that you can live life greedily, if you think or you plan to live your life as uh, being sexually immoral or as an adulterer or as a thief and a drunkard or as a slanderous person or living as a homosexual lifestyle and you plan to do that and follow Jesus, that's going to be difficult. You might be mistaken if you think that you can adopt any of those things as a lifestyle. Now, you see how inconsistent we are? Most of us here would, would say, yeah, you know, you, you can't live in the, uh, as a homosexual openly and, and, and uh, practicing that lifestyle and follow Jesus. But, you know, we have less of a problem saying, and you also can't be greedy. They're both in the same list. And I'm not sure Jesus makes a big, you know, ooh, this one's a a 10 sin, this is a one sin. I I, I don't think so. Not too sure about that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, he says, and that is what some of you were. He's writing to the church with that list. That's what some of you were, right? But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God. In other words, Jesus is bringing us out of those things. That whole list, he's he's delivering us from those things, bringing us out of those things. He's working change in us and transforming us. So when Christians try to say that the practice of things like that are just okay because we now know better culturally, that's what sometimes the argument is. Well, I would humbly, I hope, warn that we probably don't know better. Probably God and scripture know better than we do. And I would say we have to be very cautious when it comes to us sitting in judgment of scripture instead of letting scripture sit in judgment of us, our actions and our heart and our thoughts and so. Therefore, consider the possibility that when you read something in scripture that's culturally offensive, number one, you might be, Uh, interpreting the passage incorrectly. That's one strong possibility. Or number two, you might be misunderstanding what the text is really saying because of your own, our own cultural blinders. Now there's one more. Have I confused anybody here? Is Joseph here? Is Joseph in here? He just stepped out. He just had had enough. Okay, well now let's do this. If you have any questions about what I just said, contact Joseph. Okay, that'll serve him right. There you go, okay. There's one more point I wanna make on this. One more thing to consider when you're reading the Bible and you run into a passage that offends you culturally. This is a little more philosophical uh, in consideration, but still a very important point, and that is this. 
you may be getting offended because of an unexamined assumption that your culture, our culture, is superior to all other cultures, past or present, right? Let's talk about this. Whenever I say, oh, this culture or that culture is good or bad or progressive or regressive or whatever, just to say such a thing is to assume that my moment in time, my personal cultural moment right here, right now is the ultimate historic moment from which all other cultures are to be judged as progressive or regressive. Think about that. When I say that this culture is barbaric, that culture is regressive, this culture is superstitious, that culture is naive, this culture over here is sexually repressive. When I say things like this, I'm passing judgment on other cultures through the lens of my own culture, am I not? I'm assuming that my culture, my moment in time is best, is right, is, the, is good, is the correct culture from which all others are to be judged. Big point. That assertion is at least as narrow and exclusive as any view in the Bible that I find objectionable. Is it not? So for me to make assertions like that about other cultures without careful thought, without careful reflection. Now, let me just a little caveat here. If the Bible is in fact the word of God, it has every right to judge every culture at any time and at any place. Doesn't mean I have that right. I have to submit myself to what the Bible teaches you see, humbly, even if I don't understand it. I mean, I could put a question mark by it. I've got some question marks in the margins of my Bibles where I just say, you know, don't get this. I'm not entirely sure about this. I'm kind of uncertain about this. I guess I'll get either more information later. Or I'll read a book so that'll explain it or I'll talk to Jesus someday. But anyway, that wasn't even in the text. I was just free right there. For me to make assertions about other cultures without careful thought or reflection makes me guilty of the very thing I say that upsets me when I read the Bible. Don't you see? To say, oh, the Bible is so offensive and outdated, its views of sex offend me. I mean, we should be a lot more free and open with our sexual expression. Well, for me to say such a thing only indicates that in my culture and in my time, it happens to be a problem, what the Bible teaches. But understand, in another culture, the Bible's views of sex may be fine. And it might be something else that offends that culture. Let me give you an example. You know, in the Middle Eastern culture, the, Bible views, uh, the Bible's view of sex, that it's sacred, that it should happen in the context of, a, of promises made in marriage, that would be something that would be widely accepted in most Middle Eastern cultures. They would agree with that part of the Bible. Um, however, this idea of forgiving your enemies, a large part of, the, of Semitic cultures or Middle Eastern cultures would take great umbrage at that idea. You don't forgive your enemies. In fact, there's a whole religion that really practices this thing of getting justice with your enemies as opposed to offering them forgiveness. Uh, here's a question we all have to wrestle with. If you are off offended by something in the Bible, why should your cultural sensibilities trump everybody else's? Why should we dump the Bible just because it offends your cultural sensibilities in certain places? Think about that. In fact, here's a really intriguing notion. This is a notion put forth by uh, Dr. Tim Keller. And it, it, when the first time I read it, I was like, wow, he's smart. You know, but anyhow, this is a notion he puts forth. Um, if the Bible really is the word of God, if it is, and isn't just the product of a particular culture, you know, in this case, an ancient culture, wouldn't that kind of revelation coming to us from God pretty much offend every culture of every time? 
somewhere, somehow, because after all, all cultures are fallen. They're all sinful. So they're going to run up against some teachings of the Bible in some places, right? They're going to find the Bible culturally offensive. And therefore, if it is God, if the Bible is God's revelation, wouldn't it have to offend you and your cultural sensitivity somewhere, somehow? So when you read the Bible and you find parts of it offensive or culturally challenging, like for example, here's one, uh, women being the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Do you think that was culturally offensive in the first century AD? It was very culturally offensive. What? What is this? You see. Or how about this? Women being given spiritual gifts just like men. What? What, what, What's with that? And yet that's what we read. That would have offended the first century uh, AD Christians. Or women learning the scriptures right alongside of men. That would have been offensive. How about this one? Children's lives being protected both inside the womb and outside. That's pretty offensive to a lot of people in our culture. Or how about this one? The condemnation of polygamy or primogeniture. That would have been very offensive to patriarchal cultures once upon a time. Not very offensive to us, however. How about this one? Condemnation of things like divorce for trivial matters. That's pretty offensive to some parts of people living in our culture. All of that stuff was and is culturally offensive to some cultures past or present. And maybe, hear me on this, maybe that's because God is speaking wisdom to cultures in areas where cultures are blinded by their own brilliance. Point is this, the fact that the Bible is at times culturally offensive is not a reason to say it isn't from God. It's more an argument that it is. And so just to recap, you can trust the Bible historically. You can trust the Bible, I think, culturally. And one last quick point, you can also trust the Bible personally. This is important. Here I simply mean that the Bible does not call us to worship a book It does not call us to just live by a certain set of rules, which is what many other religions call you to. The Bible calls us to a living personal relationship with the living personal God. It's sometimes argued that having to accept the Bible as authoritative, well, that's just cold. That's just just legalistic. And of course it could be if that's the way you approach this thing called Christianity is uh, here's my book, here are the rules, I'll just follow it. Well, boy, I think though it can also be argued that it is necessary to embrace the Bible as completely authoritative in order to have a warm personal relationship with God. It's, it's as though the Bible, or it's through the Bible that God chiefly reveals himself. In fact, on that road to Emmaus, you remember, uh, this is the meaning of, of verse 32 there. It says, their hearts burned within them when they understood the scriptures. So when they properly understood the scriptures, all the things that Jesus had explained to them, uh, when their cultural blinders were torn away, when they could see Jesus for who he really is, it was the scriptures that revealed the love of God to them in Jesus. Don't you see that? The scriptures played that role. That's why Jesus took time to explain the scriptures to them. Understand the scriptures without Jesus will just, it'll bury you in guilt and despair if you take Jesus out of the Bible. I'll show you what I mean. Here you go. Ten commandments. Just grade yourself. Just grade yourself. Love God. Have no idols, nothing before him. Don't misuse God's name. Some of you have already done that this morning. Probably about now, you're thinking, bleep, 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 and it's time to leave. 
Keeping the Sabbath. Honor your parents. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. How are you doing on all that? Let's just uh, scare all the visitors this morning and let's be honest. How are you doing with all that? Let me tell you how you're doing. You're doomed. <laughs> you are doomed. You don't keep it any better than I do. In some way, shape, or form, you break all of those commandments too often. But in Luke 24, 27, we find the key, don't you understand, to Scripture. The key, it says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, meaning Genesis, from Genesis all the way through the, the Old Testament, it says, he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning himself. A to Z, it's about Jesus. Jesus is the key to Scripture. His work, his message, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his redemption, his gospel. The Bible tells us about Jesus. And if you think the Bible is about you, how you can live a happy life or a blessed life or how you should live or how you get to heaven, then of course you don't need a Messiah to die for you and to save you. You just need the rules. You're like the, the rich young ruler. What must I do to be saved? He just wondered if there were a few rules he hadn't heard about. Friends, there are two ways to read the Bible. You can read it as if it's all about you, what you must do, the laws you must keep, or you can read every part of the Bible as if it's about Jesus. And when you read the Old Testament, let's talk about that for a second. Over and over, God raises up prophets. He raises up priests. He raises up kings and leaders to deliver Israel spiritually and oftentimes politically. But none of those prophets, none of those priests, none of those kings are as good as they need to be. They all fall so far short of bringing true justice and lasting peace and delivering righteousness to the people. And so Israel is always looking for a new prophet, a new priest, and a new king, a more perfect redemption, a better salvation than people like Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or Moses or David or Solomon were able to bring. In fact, their work and their lives always pointed forward to Jesus. Things like the temple sacrifices, that's Jesus who is the sacrifice. Things like the festivals, the Passover meal, all in various ways point us directly to Jesus. He's the Passover lamb. He's the manna, the bread in the desert. He's the deliverer of Israel. He's the life-giving water. Remember when Moses struck the rock? He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. Jesus is the prophet the priest and the king. He's the one all of us have been looking for. It's all about Jesus. But here's the interesting irony. Jesus is all about loving and serving and forgiving you. Wow. Doesn't that make your heart burn within you? Kind of like those two on the road to Emmaus when they saw Jesus in a new light because he, Jesus had explained the scriptures to them. I believe we all have a longing in our hearts for purpose and love and significance and for security that nothing in this world can possibly satisfy. And that longing will only be satisfied when you encounter some particular scripture text that deeply and profoundly points you to Jesus so that you discover the truth about him. When you discover that truth, something takes root in you and something starts to change you. 
I would just say this in conclusion. You know, the Bible, friends, is a supernatural tool. It's supernatural because the Holy Spirit uses it. The Holy Spirit inspired it. It's a supernatural tool that God uses to help us get to know him better. And my challenge to you is the same as last, last week. So, so what are you doing? How are you using this tool to get to know him better? Are you growing in your trust of it? Are you going deeper in your understanding of it? Do you read it? Do you let it affect you? Do you sit with it? Do you meditate around it? You know, I read the statistics last week that the statistics aren't <laughs> real encouraging about how little Christians interact with, read, study their Bibles. And it's great that you're here. I mean, I, I don't know where you can get else you can get teaching like this. <laughs> There's about 2 million sites on the internet where you can do that. Uh, but uh, so this is great. We remember these things together. But the reality is too, you know, from Monday to Sunday, how do you make use of learning and growing in trust of the scriptures that introduce you to Jesus? Develop a habit, get a routine, create a plan, stick to it, make it simple enough that you can actually do it. I love these Bible reading plans. Read the Bible in a year. That's usually more than people can digest. So read the Bible in three years. Create a plan that works for you. Make it a priority because it's the chief way wherein you will hear the voice of God speaking to you. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time of study that we have had. Uh, Father, we, <laughs> seems like for everything we learn, we, we get more questions. Um, but God, we have an eternity with you to get questions answered. We look forward to that. We pray, Father, that in the time that we have in this life here on this planet, we would take advantage of the tools you've given us, this tool chiefly, the, the Bible, to, to read it, to digest it, and to be impacted and to be transformed by it. We pray that when we open the pages of this book, we really would see Jesus, hear from Jesus, get to know Jesus better. And we thank you that we don't do any of this on our own. We can always cry out to you and say, Holy Spirit, Give me understanding, give me wisdom. Give me desire, give me the discipline to keep hearing from you in the pages of this book. For we ask all of this, God, we ask this in the name of Jesus, our King, amen.